But let's pray before we begin. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be with us here in this place this morning. Join us as we gather. Make my words to be your words. Be with me as I teach. You know the limits of my knowledge. Fill our time with your truth and your good news. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know we have a couple more people coming, but we will allow them to mosey in when it's the right time. Um, If the biblical position on sexuality and sexual identity is the least popular stance we could take in today's world, as I suggested it was a couple weeks ago, then what I'm going to talk about now, I think, is a close second. Uh, We're going to spend the next three weeks presenting what I think is the best biblical reading of the God-ordained relationship between men and women. And it is a countercultural reading indeed. For instance, into this world that doesn't seem to know the difference between men and women, doesn't seem to understand the concept of women's bathrooms or women's sports or who can give birth to a child, uh, into this world comes a church like ours, a province like ours, the ACNA, and a diocese like ours, the Diocese of Christ, our hope. Um, the ACNA, for example, asserts in its constitution, if you want to look it up, uh, Title Three, Canon 8, Section 3, that in addition to other qualifications, only, quote, a male presbyter at least 35 years old can serve in the office of a bishop. The Diocese of Christ Our Hope asserts in its constitution that only qualified and called men can be ordained to the priesthood. That qualified and called women may be ordained to the diaconate, but not to the priesthood. Here are the relevant sentences. This is from Article 10 of our constitution. Quote, this diocese ordains called and gifted women as vocational deacons. We ordain called and gifted men as vocational deacons, transitional deacons, and presbyters. Presbyters is the official, more, uh, more accurate to the Greek uh, name for what we commonly call priests. We also believe in these churches that husbands are to have a certain kind of qualified and godly authority in the home in relation to their wives. Now, why would we say such things? How can we say such things in the context of our current world? These are the questions that we're going to set out to answer in these next three weeks. And the short answer, the real answer, is a simple one. We say them because we believe that the Bible teaches them. And we always, without exception, seek to submit ourselves to the Bible's teaching no matter what. And what we're going to discover as we go through this class is that men and women are complementary. We're made to go together, but are, get ready for it, different. Not in every way, certainly. In terms of imago Dei, that is the image of God, men and women are the same, created fully in that image and worthy of honor as such. Men and women are the same too in our sinfulness, though that sinfulness may manifest itself at the population level in slightly different ways. We are also the same in our need for salvation. We are the same, too, in our new standing before God due to the imputed righteousness of Christ, fully justified, fully redeemed, fully alive. And finally, we are also the same in our general calling to minister. Both men and women are called to ministry in Christ's church. Indeed, we need each other to do ministry. St. Paul says that no one part of the 
body can say to another that it is not needed. So there are myriad ways in which man and woman stand beside each other as equal. The image of God, sin, salvation, ministry. But God does seem also to have set into the created order some complementary differences between men and women. Not only in the obvious physical ways, but also in design. Men are created, designed to lead, to sacrifice, to protect to provide. This happens most obviously in husbandry and fatherhood, but can take place in many ways in the body of Christ. Women are created, designed to nurture, to support, and care. Again, this happens most obviously in wife and motherhood, but can take place, again, in many ways in the body of Christ. These design differences work themselves out both in terms of role and authority, at least in the home and in the church. And we're going to look at some of those differences in role and authority over these next few weeks. And as we do, we're going to have to make every effort to put cultural assumptions aside. Because what I'm going to suggest the Bible is teaching will certainly raise some subconscious hackles and defenses, if not some conscious ones. We're going to have to come to what God says not looking at it through the lens of our culture, often reactionary responses either to radical feminism on the one side or the patriarchy on the other, but instead endeavoring to submit ourselves to the word of God, whatever it may have to say to us. I do want to address one common overarching philosophical mistake that we're susceptible to before we even begin. Because of the cultural lenses that most of us live with, it's very easy for us to become convinced that any discussion of role difference or authority necessarily entails a difference in personhood or value. That if someone has a role that comes with less authority or is called to submit to someone else, we often assume that that person has less value or even lesser humanity than the person to whom they're called to submit. We're going to have to keep reminding ourselves as we go through that that's not true. Think of a parent and their child, or a drill instructor and a new army recruit. Now, neither of those, let me be clear, are good analogs for either the husband-wife relationship or the elder-congregation relationship, but they are examples of relationships in which both parties are completely equal in terms of value, dignity, and personhood created in the image of Almighty God equally. But in terms of role and authority, they're quite different. But role does not determine value. We're going to have to keep reminding ourselves of that. We're going to see as we come to the Bible that it makes the same distinction, that men and women are equal in terms of value, personhood, and imago Dei, but are created and called to function differently in terms of role and authority. And it will serve us well to remember, difficult though it may be at times, that differences in role and authority do not mean differences in value, dignity, or personhood. Now, our culture has told the lie that a woman can only be truly fulfilled if she's doing what a man is called to do, often in addition to what she knows deep down she has been designed to do. But it's not true. Fulfillment for both men and women comes from living into the vocation for which God has designed them. 
And so in the course of this discussion, I'm going to attempt to present a positive vision for role and ministry, both of men and women, both in home and church. There will be some necessary talk about roles and activities that are reserved for men usually in particular, but I don't want this class to come across as a catalog of things women can't do. That's not what we're doing here. We're going to look at both men and women asking what positive calling God has placed on each one as they live their lives together. So let's get oriented. This week, we're going to talk about man and woman together, which is just going to be a survey of Genesis 1 through 3, in which the Lord creates man and woman and sets them in order. It's also, of course, the story of how we sinned against that order and had God's curses pronounced against us. Next week, we'll talk about man and woman in the home. That's going to be a survey of how husbands and wives are called biblically to relate to one another. And the week after that, we'll look at man and woman in the church, in which we'll talk about leadership and appropriate roles in Christ's church. And what we're going to see throughout these sessions is that though men and women are totally equal in the eyes of God in terms of dignity and standing— There are creation order differences between men and women that play out in terms of authority and role, both in home and in church. As we go through these weeks, I'm going to be focusing mainly in the interest of time and clarity on the positive case, interpreting the scriptures in the best way that I can. Here and there, I might mention a common objection, but for the most part, I won't have time to do that. You should know, though, that there are objections scholarly and faithfully Christian objections to pretty much everything that I will say and have said so far. It's also true that I cannot, even with devoting three weeks to the topic, address every issue and every argument on every issue. For instance, there's an entire typological argument, one that intersects in many places and agrees with what I'll be presenting here. It has to do with Adam as priest in the garden sanctuary of Eden, and I'm not going to have time to address that at all. So we're going to say, we're going to try to stay close to the explicit biblical teaching and the text. And I'm convinced, along with the entirety of the Christian church throughout the history of the world until about 60 years ago, that this reading, the reading of the scripture that I'm going to present to you over these next few weeks is the most faithful one. Nevertheless, I'm happy, as I always have been, to share all my resources, both sides of this issue, with you. You can do further reading on your own. We have the uh, resources and recommended reading list there. Uh, Also, as there have been for several weeks, there are blank question cards there and a place to put them. Uh, The last session of this biblical worldview class will be given over to answering questions. Leaving them until then will give me the opportunity that I'll probably need to research and figure out an answer to what will certainly be good questions. I know how much time and effort went into creating the classes. I want to give a similar amount to answering the questions. Uh, There's also another thing that I wanted to make clear from the start, that these are second-order issues. Christians of good faith read the Bible in a different way than what I'll present to you over these next few weeks. No one who disagrees with us about 
the proper ordering of men and women in the home or in the church is going to have their salvation questioned. Now, that's assuming, of course, their acceptance of what are first order issues. Indeed, the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, of which we are a part, allows for a plurality of views on these issues and calls us to honor those who disagree with us. Our diocese ordains women to the diaconate, but not to the priesthood. There are dioceses in the ACNA who do ordain women to the priesthood, and some who do not ordain women to any order in the church at all. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, committed to doing mutual ministry together. Now that said, the views that I'm going to lay out for you are, I think, make the most sense of the biblical witness, and they are so in the opinion of our diocese, the Diocese of Christ Our Hope, And like I said, the opinion for most of the church throughout history until very recently. But though they're second order issues, they are important. The scriptures do address them and address them a lot. How are men and women to relate in the home, in the church? Homes and churches, faithful ones will attempt to organize themselves according to these principles. So even though these are not salvation issues, they're important. They deserve to be studied And they definitely contribute profoundly to the Christian worldview, which is what this class is supposed to be all about. We want to understand what the Bible says so that we can interact with our world in a faithful way. Now, at the end of our study, sort of the end hinted at at the beginning, we're going to find a few things. This is your spoiler alert. Uh, We'll find that there is a created order difference between men and women, that husbands are called to have a limited but real headship or leadership role in their relationships with their wives and are called to lay down their lives for them. We'll also find that while both men and women are called to vibrant ministry in the church, that both men and women may be called to ordained diaconal ministry, eldership, what the Anglican church translates into the roles of presbyter or priest and bishop, that's reserved to men. Now, why should these things be? Why would the Lord set it up this way? Well, I think what we're going to see is that God has designed this as a kind of three-dimensional sermon, a literal and real-life illustration of Jesus's relationship to his church. Jesus is the head, church is the body. And so it goes with the husband and wife, elder and congregation, in each case, head and body, reflecting the good news about Christ's leadership and his salvation of his people, the church. One more introductory word, a word about sources. I used a number of sources, did a lot of research listed on that resources and recommended reading sheet, but it's worth noting verbally that I owe a special debt to Mike Winger. He's a pastor in Southern California who produced a series of YouTube videos, also found on his website, biblethinker.org, about this. Um, His series does a really masterful job of researching primary sources, addressing all these arguments from various perspectives, and clearly communicating the biblical teaching. He was like a great research librarian for me, 
compiling sources, showing me where to look, what to read, making connections, summarizing arguments, and so on. So if you, were gonna, if you went and watched his whole series, you'd find a ton of stuff there that I'm sort of packaging and organizing and presenting to you. But I am providing you a service. His series is 27 hours long. Uh, we're going to do this in just about three hours. Um, but I did want to acknowledge his hard and great work. I found it to be incredibly helpful, leading me through sources, pointing me where to go, and shining a light on all the most important stuff. So, we are going to begin at the beginning, Genesis 1 through 3. And the reason we're starting there is that these first three chapters of the Bible are foundational to understanding how, well, I mean, they're foundational to everything, but they're specifically foundational to understanding how men and women are to relate to one another and to the world around them. Now, we might think, for instance, that we should look at something like 1 Timothy 3 to learn about men and women. This is where Paul lays out the order he wants men and women to fulfill in worship and the qualifications for eldership. But those passages are not in themselves foundational. No, Indeed, they come from the foundation that is established in creation, in Genesis, in the stories of humanity's creation and fall. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. The first thing I want to note about this very first chapter of the Bible, at least for our purposes in this class, is that there is little or no distinction at all between men and women in Genesis chapter 1. I'm just going to read to you verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You can hear the equality and lack of distinction, right? The Hebrew word, Adam, translated man, is used here to refer clearly to both man and woman, male and female. Both are equally made in the image of God, the highest possible statement of value. Both, again equally, are given dominion over the earth. They're both told, together in verse 28, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and subdue it. And this should suggest to us, almost as an aside, that there is no hard and fast biblical distinction between the kinds of work men and women should do. As they subdue creation together, they could have all kinds of jobs, The idealized woman of Proverbs 31, for instance, is clearly an entrepreneur. And Lydia, a disciple of Jesus who is mentioned in Acts 16, was a businesswoman in the same sense that we would recognize today. Now, St. Paul does say in Titus chapter 2 that women have a proper role to fulfill in the home, but he doesn't do so in exclusion or to the exclusion of additional work they might do outside it. The command to subdue the creation by working in it is given to both men and women together. In any case, the focus of Genesis 1 is about man and woman's relationship to creation, not to each other. There's obviously more going on in Genesis 1 than just the 
relationship of man and woman to creation. The, God is building himself a temple. But in light of what we're going to be studying over these next couple weeks, it's men and women relating to creation that we see in Genesis 1. They're to relate to it together as its pinnacle, equally in terms of role and authority. Now, that's going to change a little bit when we get to Genesis chapter 2. In the second chapter of Genesis, significant difference begins to show up. This is now moving from men and women relating to creation together and men relating to women and vice versa. Perhaps the most obvious difference is in the timing of creation. Adam is created first, does a lot of things, working in the garden, receiving instruction from God, naming the animals, and then Eve is created. Now, to the first readers of Genesis, this fact would have come with a lot of assumptions, most notably in relation to something called primogeniture. That refers to the extra rights and responsibilities that the firstborn of a family would have, like how Prince William gets to be the next king of England simply because he was born before Harry. A firstborn son in Israel would have received a double share of the inheritance. Now, there are, of course, biblical examples Biblical counterexamples to this, uh, Jacob, Joseph, and David are all not firstborn sons, but they all get chosen by God to receive a special blessing and to accomplish his purposes. But the countercultural and clearly exceptional nature of these stories, everyone is shocked, for instance, by the Lord's choosing of David, is actually what gives these stories their power and thereby shows what the default assumptions of readers would have been. They're like the exceptions that proves the rule, that being first meant a lot. Additionally, if we let the Bible interpret itself, always a good idea, we see that Adam's being created first is of great importance. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul references created order, like the literal order Adam first and Eve second, as the reason for man's headship in the church. And we're going to say more about that in a couple weeks. But being first came with some measure of authority and leadership. There are a couple other things happening here that might lead us to infer some differences in authority. The Lord gives the command not to eat of the tree to Adam before Eve is created. Eve would have had to learn this command from her husband and would also have had to learn about the animals and their names from him as well. Adam is clearly the leader of this first family. Eve was made for Adam, and he names her, which also seems to connote some measure of authority. St. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 11, saying that Eve was made for Adam and not the other way around, when he's arguing that wives should show submissiveness to their husbands. Now, again, we'll talk more about what the submission actually means next week. I know a lot of these words come freighted and are scary. Uh, Suffice to say, we're not talking about a robotic obedience that robs women of agency or will. But Eve is said to be made for Adam and not Adam for Eve. Now, here we start to see the different vocations coming into focus. Adam is called to lead his family. He receives the commandments. Eve is called to nurture and care for her family. It's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs her. Eve is called his helper 
And this Hebrew term, while not speaking to Adam's headship or Eve's submission, as some have suggested, indeed, Yahweh is the most common helper, according to this word, in the Old Testament, it does speak to a woman's created order role of nurturing, supporting, and caring. Neither husband or wife is called to take on the vocation of the other, but instead to live into and fulfill their God-ordained differences in all righteousness. An important thing to note here is that these authority differences, Adam's leadership, are in place before the entry of sin into the world. So when creation is still exactly as it should be, there seems to be a godly, tensionless, and limited authority and leadership role given to husbands in relation to their wives. But then, of course, everything falls apart. Let's move into Genesis 3 now and examine the aftermath of the fall. So after Adam and Eve sin, we see some parallels in authority differential to what we saw before the fall. First, we see that when the Lord approaches now sinful humanity in Genesis 3, verse 9, he first rebukes Adam, even though it was Eve who was tempted and sinned first. Adam seems in this way to be given greater responsibility for the fall of humanity. And this completes the logic from Genesis 2 of the Lord commanding Adam first. And Adam was supposed to pass on that commandment to his wife, Eve. Therefore, Adam is held to account for breaking it, even though both man and woman sinned and Eve sinned first. In fact, Adam seems to be present when Eve sins. You can see this in chapter 3, verse 6, and he fails to stop her. Adam's being called to account implies a leadership role that he has failed to uphold. This responsibility carries over into the New Testament. Adam is named as the representative head of sinful humanity in both 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5. Eve is mentioned in the New Testament, but not as representing all people in the same way that Adam is. There are differences, too, in the curses with which God judges Adam and Eve, and thereby all their descendants, all men and women. Adam's curse impacts all of creation. Thorns and thistles will grow from the earth instead of good plants, Of the original creation, while Eve's curse only impacts women, multiplied pain and childbearing, and a difficult relationship with her husband. Even the curse of death itself, which certainly affects both men and women and everything, is only pronounced as part of the curse against Adam. So I want to look for a moment at Eve's curse a little more closely, since it specifically pertains to the relationship between men and women, at least in terms of husbands and wives. So here's the verse. This is Genesis 3, 16. To the woman, the Lord said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, the translation, meaning, and application of the second half of this verse is extensively argued. But I think the best reading is that Eve is cursed to sinfully desire to control her husband in contravention of the created and therefore natural order in which the husband is called to be the leader of his wife. Now, it's awkward in our modern ears, but this is the best meaning of desire here. 
your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To see that, we can look at Genesis 4, verse 7, just one chapter later, in which sin, and this is in the context of Cain and Abel, sin is described as crouching at the door. Its desire, we read, is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same phrasing as Eve's curse. So desire here is the desire to control, to master. Sin desires to control, to rule over you, but instead you must rule over it. So Eve's desire will be to rule over her husband when God has instead given that leadership role to him. The other side of this cursed coin is that Eve's husband and all husbands to come will have his proper calling to lead her unnaturally twisted. He will rule over her. Sin will taint his leadership. Let's understand this. The biblical message here is that it's not his leading her at all that's wrong. That's actually God-ordained. But part of Eve's curse is that Adam's good godly and limited leadership will curdle and lead to sinful abuses. Now, to prove this, I want to look back at part of Adam's curse. The Lord says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Adam is told that farming will now be more difficult because of thorns and thistles, which didn't exist before. Adam, of course, would have had to work the land before the fall. He was already a farmer, but now his farming would be much more difficult. So farming is good. The curse, with its thorns and thistles, made farming harder. So something that already existed and was good is made more difficult by the fall. In the same way, now looking back to Eve's curse for a second, childbearing is good. It's just that now, because of sin, it's going to be much more painful and difficult. So you can see the parallel. God-ordained marriage roles are good. They're just now going to be tainted by sin. Now they'll be much harder. Just like farming and just like childbirth, a good thing has been made more difficult by sin. Therefore, to alleviate the curse, we remove the abuses, not the God-ordained order itself. We don't say that farming or childbirth are bad, and neither should we denigrate God's good created order and distinct roles for men and women, what Paul will lay out in Ephesians 5. We instead work to recover the good created order. It's good, I think, for us to remember that all of this is in the context of God creating the first marriage. That's acknowledged both in Genesis 2, when the text says that the husband shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife before there even are such things as fathers and mothers, and Genesis 3, when we read that the wife's desire shall be for her husband. A marriage relationship is assumed here. So, That means that God is not giving men in general leadership over women in general or asking all women to submit to all men. 
He's making a husband the leader, or to use the biblical word, the head of his wife. Not all men the head of all women, nor telling all women they must submit to all men. A husband is the head of his wife, and a wife should submit to her husband. More on that again next week. So there are biblical mandates for single people too, of course. St. Paul talks not only about chastity, but about ministry. And the principles laid out in this creation story about men and women can give us wisdom in how we all relate to one another. But it must be noted that the main thrust of biblical instruction about men and women, as we'll detail in our next two classes, are about how they are to relate to each other as husband and wife and about how they are relate to each other as covenant members of Christ's church. And we must also never let the commands and instructions here blind us to the good news of the gospel. Because this is fundamentally law that we're talking about here. How God set things up and how he intends his creation to work. This is the law and is therefore for our good and something to which we ought to submit ourselves, obedience to God's law will lead to our flourishing. But whenever we interact with law, as good and right and holy as it is, we must remember the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Indeed, pregnant even in these curses that we're talking about, the Lord's curses on humanity, is the good news that one of Eve's descendants will crush the head of the serpent, Jesus Christ. This means actually that part of Jesus's perfection, which is given to us by grace through faith, is actually the perfection of faithful adherence to these very roles of biblical submission and leadership. Men, in their sin under the curse, will not live into their vocation righteously, leading, sacrificing, protecting, providing. Any of it, including godly leadership, it will all be tainted by sin. And yet, such leadership is given to men by faith in Christ. And by a miracle, repentance and faith, godly leadership is actually part of the good work that God has prepared men to walk in. We say this at the end of every service, right? Lead us into all the good works that you have prepared for us to walk in. This is part of that. Similarly, women in their sin under the curse, will not live into their vocation righteously, nurturing, supporting, caring, any of it, including this godly submission. And yet, such submission is given to women in Christ. And by the same miracle of repentance and faith, godly submission is actually part of the gift, part of the good work that God has prepared women to walk in. So, Where are we as we wind up our time this first week? What have we said so far? What do the first three chapters of the Bible have to teach us about the intended and God-ordained interrelationship between men and women? Well, Genesis 1, we have the wonderful truth that both men and women are made equally in God's image. Both men and women are immeasurably valuable. Both men and women have been given dominion over the earth. As it relates to creation, men and women seem utterly equal. In Genesis chapter 2, we begin to see that in relation to each other, 
God has given a certain kind of leadership role to men and husbands in particular. These roles seen in the creation order, the naming, the passing on of the commandments, and more worked harmoniously at first. Part of God's perfect creation involved different roles for husband and wife in relationship to each other. Adam had a leadership role in relation to Eve. Now, it's worth noting here as an aside that Eve was expected to have access to any and all theological knowledge that Adam had. There was no special teaching that was just for Adam and not for Eve. It was God's expectation that Adam was going to tell Eve everything that he himself had been told, everything he knew about the Lord, his commandments, and his love. There's therefore nothing that a woman should not learn about theology or about the Lord. Indeed, God assumed that Adam had passed all his knowledge on to Eve, all the true things that he knew about him. And in Genesis 3, we continue to see a leadership role assumed by the husband, though here expressed in the negative. And he is responsible for humanity's fall into sin, and his curse affects the whole world. Due to that fall and the curses that accompany it, the God-ordained roles that we saw in Genesis 2 are now going to be much more difficult to live with. Life together will be painful. Conflict will come. Neither leadership nor submission will be engaged in righteously. But the curse does not initiate the role distinctions. Instead, the curse brings difficulty and hardship into distinctions that already exist and were created by God. We now live in a fallen world whose ideals, a leading and sacrificing husband and a submitting and loving wife are rarely expressed without the taint of sin. Abuse exists. But the fallen state of the world is no reason to throw over the created order. No, indeed, we should desire to return to it. We should seek to reverse the pain, not the nature of the relationship involving this leadership and submission, right? We don't object to farming. We object to thorns and thistles. We don't object to childbirth. We try to mitigate its pain. And in the same way, we ought not to object to God-ordained roles. We object to the abuses, of those roles. Ephesians 5, a passage that we're going to look at in detail next week, Ephesians 5 provides a template for God-ordained husband and wife relationships redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wives, Paul writes, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Selfless, sacrificial, loving, non-forceful, nurturing leadership from the husband and voluntary loving submission from the wife, both acting in love and service to God, are the ways which God intends for us to live together. Because we are new creations in Jesus Christ, this law ceases to simply judge us and point out our failures and instead becomes a promise to us, a miraculous truth in which even sinners like us can partake. So next week, we'll talk about man and woman at home, looking at God's intention for men and women as they relate to each other as husband and wife. To do that, we're going to look closely at the definitions of the words head and submit as they are used in the New Testament. Husbands are in several places called to be the head of their wives, and wives are similarly called to submit to their husbands. We're going to want to know what those words mean. To find out, we're going to spend most of our time studying three key passages, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, Colossians 3, 18 and 19, and as promised, Ephesians 5, 21 through 36. But that's next week. Let's close this week in prayer. Dear God, we ask you to be with us as we study your word. Speak clearly to us. Help us to know that whatever you say to us, it is good, and it is for our good. Teach us your desires for us. Help us fulfill them in a way that honors each other and you. Most of all, remind us that when we fail, we have a Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, who has taken our failures onto himself and given us his perfect righteousness in return. In him we can rest. We ask now as we go our separate ways this morning that we would walk in your grace and peace and comfort until we come together again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.